Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Thomas Maxwell. Uh, Thomas is a lecturer at Lincoln University in New Zealand. He and I met at the Society for Range Management's annual meeting in Denver in 2020, which was the last significant travel that I enjoyed before much of the world stopped commingling in public spaces. Uh, Thomas, welcome. Thanks, Tip. Um, really thrilled to be here in your podcast talking to you again. And yeah, just to add on to that, that was the last bit of significant travel I did as well to the States last year before the COVID situation escalated. But yeah, it's real it was good, a good to conference be talking and, to you again. Yeah, it was a good conference. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about yourself. Are you from New Zealand? And how did you end up being a range guy, which you are, even if that's not what they call it in New Zealand? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I am. A New Zealander, a Kiwi, though I have mixed heritage. Um, my father is a New Zealander and my mother's from Hong Kong. So I've lived in both, grew up in both places. And um, that's I got interested in pasture from, I think, in my teenage years, or rather farming, hill country farming, sheep and beef farming. We had some family friends um Matthew and Angela Hammond, who were sheep and beef farmers in the central, uh, western North Island of New Zealand. Very extensive um, hill country, um, steep slopes, and uh, naturalized exotic grassland communities with some native shrub and forest remnants. But they came to Hong Kong um, trying to uh, suss out some trading opportunities in mainland China for their wool and meat. And my dad, being a a New Zealander living there, and when my mum had an old family friend who was a business businessman who hooked us up with the Hammonds, and um, they invited us down to their farm when we were back in New Zealand, and from a young age, so the first time was 1997 when I was 13, went to their farm, and I'd always been interested in the outdoors, but Progressively up to my starting university, I stayed at their farm and worked and learned about sheep farming, grazing management, using beef cattle. They had uh, Aberdeen Angus cattle, which are really suited to the steep hill country of New Zealand, which similar to parts of the highlands of Scotland where these sheep were, you yeah, well, came from. Um, so, and then I, um, I wanted to do a degree in something outdoor. I was really interested in physical geography and ecology, and I really liked being on a farm, pastoral farm, so I did a Bachelor of Agricultural Science and um, stuck with that, though I had ambitions to be a vet, but I had better marks in plant science and soil science, so I stuck with that. And then in my final year of my bachelor's, I discovered a journal called uh, the Journal of Range Management, which is now, of course, is Rangeland Ecology and Management. And it was such a thrill to find this scientifically produced, peer-reviewed you know, journal with papers about uh, wolf and cattle interactions in Western North America or Patagonian dry steppe grasslands or, you know, and, and Mongolian grazing lands, uh, things like this. And so I thought, wow, there's a there's actually a scientific discipline in this. And then sort of got into the rangeland um, thinking and reading of which North America, particularly Western US, obviously kind of birthplace for that concept, I suppose, even though there's rangelands all around the world. And then I found out that we actually used to have a professor of range management here at Lincoln University, the late Professor Kevin O'Connor, and so I thought, well, there's a, New Zealand's got a bit of history in this space. So that kind of sums up in a way to how I got interested in it, um, and I've maintained an interest. I ended up doing my PhD on some naturalised annual clovers in 
um, some rangeland areas of southern New Zealand. And so I've carried on that interest into an academic career here at Lincoln as a lecturer in pasture science. So I do stuff on dairy pasture as well and lowland stuff, but my heart really is in the hills in the high country and um, more extensive rangeland situations, yeah. Uh, I know almost nothing about the geography of New Zealand, except that there's lots of hills that have grass on them. Can you, so I don't, I don't know where Lincoln University is, uh, but, but I have some idea of what the islands of New Zealand look like. Can you give just a, a thumbnail sketch of what is the, uh, the geography and the botany of New Zealand for people who don't know New Zealand? Certainly, Tip, yeah. Um, so New Zealand's got a latitude range of 34 degrees south to 47 degrees south. So the uh, 45th parallel in the southern hemisphere runs through the, cent uh, the middle of the South Island. Lincoln University um, is just outside Christchurch on the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And um, we have an oceanic climate. We're surrounded by ocean, this Tasman Sea to the west, the Southern Ocean to the south, and the Southern Pacific to the west, uh, to, to the east, sorry. The west is the Tasman Sea. And um, so where, where, where I am now is quite similar latitude to parts of um, Oregon. You know, the 45th parallel runs through, I believe, close to Salem or Eugene, right, in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, and in a similar vein, the Cascade mountain range in your part of the world, the PNW, Pacific Northwest, uh, how that influences the climate in the west of Washington and Oregon is very similar to the way the Southern Alps of New Zealand uh, have a massive role in determining the climate of New Zealand. So mm. we have the Southern Alps, which run in a uh, southwest to northeast direction in, into the North Island as well. There's a, the main divide there. And as a result, generally speaking, the west of New Zealand is wetter and the east is drier because of the rain shadow effect. Now, um, you mentioned... Tip in one of your previous podcasts, I think you were talking to Dr. Steve Franson about how the rainfall gradient for the Cascades is, starts at what sort of 150 inches at the crest and gets down to five inches closer to where you are in central Washington. Is that correct? Correct. Right. So, just to give a contrast, um, in New Zealand, that range has a similar gradient but is even steeper. We have 354 inches in some parts of the west around Fiordland, which is 9,000 millimetres, down to 11 inches in central Otago, which is on the eastern side and surrounded mm. by mounts like an inland basin. Um, those listeners in North America might have heard of a place called Queenstown, so that's in, that's in the central Otago. A lot of, you know, filming of Lord of the Rings was done around there, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. So that's that rainfall gradient has determined the the biomes and, and the, the botany of New Zealand. Um, wow. Yeah, and we have um, a range of native podocarps or conifers. Um, so basically, we, there's a mixture. New Zealand was a was a temperate forest with smatterings of um, tussock grassland before people first arrived. So. The first people to arrive in New Zealand were the ancestors of, of the Māori, our, our native indigenous people from eastern Polynesia, about 800 to 1100 years ago. And um, what they saw was a huge continent based relative to what they'd been used to in eastern Polynesia of you know relatively small islands, even though New Zealand is not a continent relative to Australia or North America. but for the early Polynesian migration, this was huge and much further south than what they were used to. It was below the 
the tropic of the southern hemisphere. So new climate to adapt to and new plants, um, new new uh, animals. There are no native mammals in New Zealand bar two small little bats which fit in the palm of your hand, native bats and fur seals on the coast, but no native herbivores or um, native um, carnivores uh, hmm. on the land, but lots and lots of birds, much less so now since people arrived in New Zealand. But, um, yeah, there were large flightless birds that evolved in the absence of major predators bar an eagle that is also now extinct. So the, the, the landscape was forest, a mixture of broadleaf and conifer in the north as we go further south towards the bottom of the South Island, um, changed to beech forest, nothophagus uh, species, different to the north uh, northern hemisphere beach. And um, as you got higher up into the mountains, into the above the tree line, tussock grasslands, and then scree and snow. So that was pre-people. Once people arrived, um, that started changing quite dramatically due to uh, firstly with Polynesian hunting uh, tactics and clearing land for growing kumara um, or such like uh, crops from Polynesia. So they used fires to flush out large game birds like the moa, which was several times bigger than an ostrich. And so there was this sort of plentiful bounty of birds um, for meat in the early days, but um, that population crashed after a few hundred years, and the Maori were ancestors of modern day of the Maori were first to forced to um, go farming, as it were, start to settle down and um, be agriculturalists in areas that it made sense to, and this led to further burning of forest areas, which actually paved the way for um, the natural expansion of grassland areas, so native tussock grassland areas. Or the tussock, a tip we talked about in the past, is like a bunch grass you'd find in North America, but mm -hmm. can get up to one, one and a half meters in size. Um, yeah, so that's uh, an abbreviated history, if you like, of the botany and geography of New Zealand. Did I hear you correctly that it's believed that the Polynesians didn't arrive until about a thousand years ago? The oral history of Maori people, it varies from 800 years to 1100, maybe more, sort of around about a thousand to 800 years was when the first wave of Polynesian migration arrived onto the shores of what we now call New Zealand, but the early Polynesians um, gave the name Aotearoa, which stands for land of the long white cloud. And if you can imagine yourself in an outrigger canoe from eastern Polynesia on trade winds trying to come south, seeing this large white cloud in the distance being created as a result of the mountain chain. So, you know, you know you're normally looking out on the horizon and it's open ocean and all of a sudden there's this odd cloud because there's a landform creating the uplift of that water vapor and condensation. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but to answer your question, um, around about 1,000 to 800 years. So New Zealand is one of the last major land masses to be um, colonized or uh, have the arrival of people, if you think of it that way. Yeah, yeah I did not know that. Uh, at what point was there subsequent settlement by whatever we now call people who arrived on the islands later than the uh, than the Polynesians. Right. So, yeah. Um, so from about 1840, there was significantly more European settlers to New Zealand. When I say European, I'm referring to the British Isles, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, um, some from Scandinavia and uh, the Netherlands later on, but predominantly from the United Kingdom, the sort of British Empire links. Um, and 
a name for New Zealanders today of European descent is um, Pākehā. So um, from the first European, according to oral history and uh, Dutch history matching up, was Abel Tasman and his, and his ship, which I forget the name of, but came uh, anchored in a cove off the northwest of the South Island. None of his men, according to the ship's logs, actually set foot on New Zealand or Aotearoa, though he mm. named it Nova Zealandia, Zealandia in Dutch, meaning because he was in thought of an island of his home province, Zealand, thus New Zealand. Um, mm. But no other Europeans uh, made it down to Aotearoa, New Zealand, until the British and Captain James Cook, and he came three times from three separate occasions, and that's when the first contact between Euro European or outsiders and and Maori people occurred uh, on land, as it were. There was a bit of a skirmish between um, local Maori in the in the South Island, and where Abel Tasman's ship anchored and his fleet. It was actually a a cultural misunderstanding. Um, the the Dutch sailors responded, tried to respond in a friendly greeting, but the local Māori viewed that as a call to war. So as a result, there was some bloodshed on that occasion. But but the um, when Captain James Cook arrived, it was it was different. Um, there was there was conflict, but there was also um, uh, peaceful interaction at first. Something in the back of my brain wants to say that that stretch of water between the North Island and the South Island is called Cook Strait. Is that right? That is that is correct. You're, you're dead right. Yeah. Huh. That's the um, that's the name, uh, common name we use now. There is a there is a, um, a name that uh, Maori, local Maori tribes in the bottom of the North Island, the top of the South Island have. But yeah, we call that Cook Strait. It's uh, mm -hmm. quite an interesting stretch of water. It's it's not calm like uh, the Puget Sound. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, at what point after that did uh, domestic livestock begin to arrive? I would presume not very long. Yeah, so we had the Treaty of Waitangi in uh, 1842, and um, from that point onwards, there was a lot of interaction. Um, some good, a lot not so good, um, land wars, Māori and European settlers battling for for land or rather invasion of tribal lands by more settlers. It was quite interesting, the, the balance of power, if you like, or balance of population for, local, for Māori people and European settlers changed really quickly in the space of 20 years. There were more Māori people than European settlers, but then over the course of a 20-year period, the number of European settlers doubled or tripled. And so um, that led to significant cultural and ecological changes to the landscape of, of New Zealand. Um, but the domestic livestock followed um, European uh, settlement and spread through the North Island and, and the South Island. And... Um, the first, yeah, it was sheep and beef cattle at first, primarily. Yeah, and um, it, there were there was a, a movement for many many years of burn felling, clear felling, and burning uh, forested hillsides in the North Island first, and then later in the South Island uh, to make clear the land, the wilderness, if you like, for farming, for pastoral farming. Uh, with the intention of, um, well, subsequently became to feed, su supply, export of meat and wool to um, back to Britain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so there was quite a significant um, ecological change to the landscape with clear felling of these native in the north, mixed broadleaf podocarp forests, it would occur in four stages. You'd have clear felling in the in the winter, and then let things dry, and then drier in the summer, and then try to get a really strong burn that would go through and clean everything up and create as much ash as possible. 
a, like a fertile, mm-hmm. fertile environment for introduced grasses or, or crops to establish. And then also, also later in subsequent years when the big tree trunks of some of these native trees were fully dry, burning again. So a lot of the easier lowland country had been clear felled um, by that time. And was it the combination of those practices that would lead to uh, the vegetation shifting to other species? Yeah. Or did that not happen? Oh, no, yeah, that, that was that was the prime factor of change. Um, so just stepping back a little bit, European, before European um, initiated change, the, the Māori were also creating a change in the landscape through their um, burning for clearing land and um, hunting big game, the, the, the birds. Um, that in the South Island, particularly, a lot of the what we call montane tussock grasslands expanded due to what we believe was um, uh, Maori fires for for hunting and clearing land. Um, and as a result of that, um, a second wave of change with European settlers into the South Island back block area. So these are the real kind of rangeland areas of New Zealand, uh, large, expansive mountain basins. Uh, high mountains, um, what we call hill and high country, anything over 600, 700 metres altitude um, would be considered high country. And it could be um, rolling to flat or quite undulating and steep country. Um, That was further fires were done there of burning of the tussock grasslands to promote new growth and new shoots from these bunch big bunch tussock, native tussock grasslands of the Chinochaloa and Poa uh, species, families, um, the new growth the sheep could eat because the biomass and at times was more than 50% dead standing matter. So the, the settlers try uh, in the summers, it was a periodic practice of burn and create an environment for new growth and also subsequent seeding of more English or southwestern European grasses and legumes and herbs to improve the um, forage availability for sheep, primarily sheep, and then later on a bit more beef cattle in those what we call the big South Island runs. Or the, In New Zealand and Australia, to the uh, we don't use the word ranch as commonly as your part of the world, but ranch and station are kind of synonymous. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, a big station would be like a big ranch, you know, several thousand or tens of thousands of acres of uh, country for extensive pastoralism. And what what today is the general balance between uh, the different livestock species? New Zealand's known for sheep, but are sheep still the dominant uh, livestock species there, or are cattle as abundant? That's a very good question, Tim. Um, so. New Zealand reached its peak sheep livestock number um, in 1990 or 1980s, about 70 million. But that has dropped now to 26, 27 million sheep. Hmm. Um, And that's in response to several factors. The the number of dairy cattle has increased uh, significantly in the last 10 to 15 years. But the balance of livestock in New Zealand today is it's 40, uh, 44% of farms are mainly sheep and beef farming. Often you'll find sheep and beef cattle coexisting, grazing together. Whether the focus is the sheep or the beef depends on uh, the individual farmer or station run holder. But usually the beef cattle are used to condition or, uh, the pastures or supplement the pastures help grazing management to improve it for sheep. Hmm. Um, the rest, uh, 21% is for dairy farming. Then we have mixed livestock. In terms of numbers, um, there's uh, much more um, beef uh, dairy cattle now than sheep. So about 27 million sheep and about uh, 5.9 uh, 
what, six, about 6.4 million dairy cattle and 3.8 million beef cattle and 27 million sheep and just under a million deer, which is another interesting story kind of unique to New Zealand, the farming of deer. Yeah, these are the red deer? Am I, is that uh, right? Mixture of red deer from Europe and uh, wapiti or elk from North America. Huh. Yeah, different genetics there, but pro- the original deer in New Zealand originated from uh, red deer uh, imported from the UK. Yeah. And they're farmed for meat? They're farmed for meat, venison, and also uh, velvet or immature antler, which is used mm. in uh, traditional uh, Asian or Chinese medicine. Yeah, fetch, uh, Korea and uh, places like Hong Kong big markets for that and then the venison primarily destined for northern europe for their midwinter market scandinavia northern germany yeah and that's one of the advantages new zealand has had is we're in the southern hemisphere but supplying a northern hemisphere market so we're out of sync with the northern hemisphere and we can supply things like lamb to the uk and Europe in uh, Christmas and Easter, and increasingly more to the United States, though more kind of specialist cuts of lamb and meat. And going back to your comment about the increase in dairy cattle, you know, in, I'm not sure what the um, what the percentages are in the United States, but the majority of dairies in the U.S. are feeding mostly, you know, harvested feedstuffs, bunk feeding. Right. You know, more like a feedlot situation where the animals are milked rather than pastured dairy cattle. There's certainly plenty of pastured dairy cattle, right? Um, but but if you looked at, you know, say for example, the percent of um, the percent of feed on an annual basis across all dairy cattle in all of the U.S., I would guess that it's a pretty large majority of that feed is is uh, fed and not grazed off of a you know a pasture right i'm guessing that's not the case in new zealand is that right your your guess is spot on it's correct yeah um 90 95% of the feed for our dairy cattle herd is um grazing in situ or um yeah supplement made from that grazing platform of uh, ryegrass dominant pasture with some forage crops for winter and summer of different varieties, but yes, it's um, pretty much in situ grazing. Though um, we have a very seasonally dominant um, grazing herd, so you know there's a lactation and then a rest in the winter. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right there, Tip. It's most predominantly um, pasture-fed dairy cattle. Um, there's been a it was quite interesting the in the last 10 last decade 15 years the dairy industry has really boomed or increased significantly in New Zealand in response to a increasing demand or market for dairy products particularly in in Asia um, Southeast Asia growing affluence in you know Ch- Chinese cities and in India um, New Zealand is the eighth largest which is nothing really milk producer in the world we Mm. produce like three percent of the world's milk if you think of Mm -hmm. you know the world's milk as being a a 10 gallon bucket um but 80 percent of that milk is is consumed in that bucket is consumed by the countries that produce it 20 percent on the top the cream if you like is exported is traded internationally new zealand plays a big part in that 20% that's traded, hence being one of the largest uh, producers and exporters of butter and milk powder onto the world market. Um, and yeah, that that perception or that reality of grass-based um, dairy products is, um, is something that we push quite hard for our marketing. Well, I'm sure. I, I think you've begun to answer one of the questions that I wanted to get to, which was that uh, there's something significant going on in New Zealand because Americans, uh, we have all we have all kinds of pasture innovations that are referred to as uh, 
New Zealand products. So Americans still talk about electric fences being New Zealand fence. And we have no-till pasture drills that are called New Zealand drills. And there's a lot of pasture seed technology that, uh, you know, has New Zealand uh, language on it. Uh, So, you know, I think most Americans don't have any idea where that comes from. But yeah, I think you've begun to answer that question. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're trying to get cows to produce milk and milk fat, uh, they have to have a pretty high quality diet. And if they're getting all of that diet or the vast majority of it in situ in grazing on pasture or wildlands, uh, you have to provide them with pretty high quality forage. Yeah. Um, when you, I find that quite, um, quite interesting or a bit of a hoot, like kind of a thrill to hear you say <laughs> those things, um, tip because to be honest, a lot of New Zealanders aren't aware. I, I wasn't that aware until you made it, pointed it out to me of things like, oh, you know, the electric fence or some fencing technology, we call it New Zealand fence across the States and direct no-till direct drill is a New Zealand drill. And these are things, I guess, that evolved out of New Zealand or, you know, in New Zealand, we built on the work of previous um, mm-hmm. countries and evolved it. Um so that New Zealand fence, as we could call it, I suppose, it's kind of funny saying that, being here, but um, <laughs> the electric fence, yeah, it evolved out of the necessity to maximize um, milk solid production, so milk fat and protein, from a limited area, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's how the, I guess, the more precise and um, the stock standard uh, rotational grazing for New Zealand dairy pastures of moving you know, moving the cattle onto a new break of dairy pasture when the ryegrass reaches the three leaf stage uh, evolved around, uh, was made possible with this electric fencing of putting up a two-wire uh, high tensile, highly conductive uh, metal wire around your given paddock and putting just the clip on and with the electric current going through was an easy way to concentrate grazing pressure in that area for 24 hours or 12 hours before the cows move to their next break. I remember talking to, at the Society of Range Management Conference last year, I think the next day after we'd first met, I talked to Professor uh, Clayton Marlowe of Montana State University, who was the past president. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very kind to make time for me during that event because he was sort of basically one of the organizers and he said he talked about visiting New Zealand when his son was there and saying you know one of the reasons I guess you guys have refined or been pushed more to evolve your grazing management and the way that it has is because you've got limited land relative to to us here in North America mm-hmm. you know he, he mentioned well if we kind of ran out of things or stuffed things up here we could move west he says a very broad general comment i hope doesn't offend anybody but there's some reality to that you know you all just keep moving west whereas new zealand well you're going to move into the sea if you do that so there was this um necessity um and practicality that emerged um to make the best and most appropriate use ecologically for economic gain of the area you had so the areas where there is dairy farming relative to extensive, you know, more sh- uh, grazing for sheep and beef cattle uh, is, is dictated by topography and, and soil and climate. The flatter lowland areas now are really dairy dominant if it's not a pastoral industry, if, if it's another agricultural industry. It's uh, the lowland volcanic soils or deeper soils that hold good water are used for dairying, whereas the hill country. Uh, in both wetter and drier areas are the domain of um, sheep and beef cattle. Yeah, and in those areas, you know, you you can get some electric or New Zealand fence in the areas that you can use, can cultivate and improve pastures, whereas the hillside, in order to do that, we've used aerial top dressing, uh, so spreading fertiliser like superphosphate and legume seed from an aeroplane onto inaccessible areas with a truck or a tractor. That's the mm. way to get to try and improve the forage resource or get 
you know, nitrogen fixtures into the system. Um, yeah. So is that level of pasture management relatively common? Is that more or less the norm or does that represent people who are being, um, you know, kind of on the, the, the leading edge of management, uh, trying to optimize production? Uh, with regards to flying on seed and fertilizer into hill country. Yeah, and using yeah. electric fence to, you know, manage grazing use. Yeah, it's um, where it makes sense to have the electric fence. Um, it's pretty much done. It's very commonplace. Yeah. Post World War Two, from the 1950s, massive increase in the use of superphosphate and aerial, using aerial top dressing, f flying that on to hill hill country farms using an aeroplane also lime to correct um, a native uh, soil acidity to improve nutrient uptake but that that it's common practice when the the individual farms capital capital allows when the finances mm -hmm. allow to fly on lime and superphosphate uh, to drive the legume component which you, uh, mm -hmm. legumes like your clovers or your lotus your alfalfa we call that lucerne in new zealand um, it's much more hungry for phosphorus and sulfur rather than the grass. And if you can get that nitrogen flowing through those legumes, it benefits the grass, of course. And um, it is very – that's kind of the – I don't know if stock standard's the word, but very common uh, mindset and cultural practice for hill country farmers in the last half century, um, generally speaking. On top of that, with sound grazing management, uh, with timing and density to encourage um, legume components at the times of the year when um, we're into the growth phase of our pasture calendar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yes, that is common tip. That is kind of what everybody um, does if they can. Um, yeah. Yeah, you were involved in a recent paper on functional diversity versus monotony. I think the subtitle was the effect of a multi-forage diet as opposed to a single forage diet on animal intake, performance, welfare, and urinary nitrogen excretion. I have some idea of what I think functional diversity means, you know, in a kind of a wildland rangeland setting. But I'm interested in, in uh, your definition of that given the physical context or the agriculture agricultural context that we're talking about and is that a, a reaction to practices that are reducing functional diversity and you're uh, looking for some ways to improve it and looking for some you're looking to demonstrate some uh, agricultural and economic benefits of doing that what was the genesis of that study and uh, how would you describe functional diversity um, yes, 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 and yes, Tip. You're, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll go through those points. But, yeah, no, you're, um, you're absolutely right in your um, thought process there. Um, actually summed it up better than I could. Um, functional diversity first. So, so that project you're referring to, which is very recent, you're um, right up with the play there. Um, it's a very good PhD student we have here, Connor Garrett, who um, is the main supervisor there is Professor Pablo Grigorini. And yes, I, I was involved in that with looking at. So the functional biodiversity being, okay, what can we match? Can we improve on just one or two species in the landscape? So it's, I've got all sorts of thoughts flying through my head. But yes, this is a reaction to a sort of slight, um, a trend towards more monotonizing forage resources and intensive agriculture in New Zealand. Uh, ryegrass has become very dominant for dairy pastures uh, because it responds to, you know, urea fertilizer, which has uh, been relatively easy to apply even though the cost is going up. As a result, the legume component has deteriorated because it's outcompeted by this free nitrogen in the grasses. Um, response mm. to that better. So yes, there has been a push towards uh, feeding more quickly and uh, more easily and as a result we're getting sort of more single species or just dual species dominance um, but that just looks at one aspect of nutrition and livestock production perhaps 
So with this study, we were thinking about other things like animal welfare, um, hard to measure animal happiness, but um, or whatever it means, but a varied diet, I mean, and a, a diverse diet, um, having benefits of greater nutrition, live weight gain, but also reduced um, environmental, negative environmental impacts or consequences of livestock production, such as methane, gas emissions, um, urinary nitrogen deposition to free draining soil and potential nitrate leaching and negative effects on freshwater ecosystems, things like this. So mm. that study we looked at are basically um, free, uh, Professor Fred Provenza, who I know you've had on your show, is um, a bit of a mentor of Pablo Gregorini. And um, he's his thinking, I guess, out of when he, and, you know, he's still active a bit, but out of Utah State has influenced that research, this research that's going on here with Pablo. But um, if you can imagine a strip, a paddock in front of you, a field, a pasture, and we've got defined strips of alfalfa, so a monoculture strip of alfalfa next to that ryegrass, perennial ryegrass, next to that chicory, next to that plantain, and then next to that either a red clover or a lotus, something with a higher condensed tannin uh, composition in its herbage. And the idea there is testing two things, both um, herbage mass on offer, but when it's available as well. So almost influencing the availability at the time of day of these different forages for the animal. And so rather than saying giving them a smorgasbord all at once, um, you match it to the different grazing patterns or habits of the animal over the course of a day. That's the philosophy behind that research drive. Mm -hmm. And it's yielded some interesting results. So um, hmm. a recent student finished here, Dr. Matt Beck, who's originally from Arkansas, Oklahoma. He's back in the States now, but he did something similar in this in this space um, and looking at animal physiology parameters as a result of eating these strips of diverse pasture or a pasture that's made up of distinct spatially separated strips of forage. Now, the challenge tip is how can we take this to a much more rangeland-like landscape and how would that fit in? Uh, to me, functional biodiversity, to me personally, shouldn't discriminate between native, exotic or naturalized species. If a species has a function in a landscape, regardless of how it got there and if it's not deemed a noxious weed, it should have some value, particularly if this is a grazed agroecosystem. One um, point I'd like to make that's possibly, there may be other countries in the world that this is the case, but the native grasslands of New Zealand evolved in the absence of mammalian herbivores. Mm -hmm. And so um, the early days of high country pastoralism with burning that tussock grassland to promote it, growth for sheep, uh, this was major shock to the uh, resilience of that system. Um, and as a result, it's really now those, a lot of those what we call native grassland areas are a mosaic of native communities with uh, introduced European grasses or Eurasian legumes and things like that. Um, so this functional biodiversity is an evolving um, tool and concept um, I guess in acknowledgement of more biodiversity is better for all sorts of ecosystem services, we're trying to um, move in that way a bit, but not be so pure in the sense of, well, if it's not a native plant, get rid of it. That's, I have to say this, New Zealand agriculture and pastoralism would not be what it is today and not being as successful in terms of earning money for the country and a reputation for the country if it wasn't for species that originated from southwestern Europe, North America, and Eurasia with mm -hmm. regards to pasture and grassland herbs, you know, past species. Mm. I like the idea of forage sequencing as a means of uh, getting diversity in the diet rather than trying to pack 25 different species into the same square meter. That yeah. reminds me of 
uh, something that I, I can't remember whether Dr. Provenza talked about this in our interview or not, but he, as you may know, co-authored a book with a guy from France on shepherding yes. and kind yeah. of a, a resurgence of interest in old-fashioned shepherding. And one of the things that, yeah. that the old shepherds knew about was uh, you know, camping animals out, moving them from one plant community to the next in a, you know, a natural setting. Uh, and, and the, that sequence had meaning and purpose to it. it. You know, in many cases it allowed animals to digest certain feedstuffs that they would not have been able to metabolize otherwise because of what they ate immediately before that. And some of the plant secondary compounds that, uh, conditioned the rumen to be able to digest whatever came next. Uh, yeah. That's really intriguing. And of course, on rangelands, you know, you you get some of that naturally. Where, you know, in any place where the soil profile, um, I guess both uh, horizontally and vertically, has not been homogenized, you you naturally have different species that uh, prefer one environment over the other. And so here you have, you know, mid-sized grasses and tall grasses, and then over there in the shallower clay or soils, you have, uh, you know, native forbs that have a whole different nutritional profile and animals ordinarily would have access to all of that in a given, in a given pasture, paddock, range unit, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Well, that brings to mind another, I guess, fundamental difference between the, the grazing reality of rangelands in New Zealand versus Western North America, or, well, let's say areas that you're familiar with, Tip, in your work, um, um, is the scale, going back to the comment made by uh, Clayton Marlow, of the scale of, you know, the Western rangelands or grazing areas that are used in Western U.S. versus a place like New Zealand. Right. At I one point, talk, it was felt that yeah. they were unlimited, that you could always just move into the next big spot yeah. and just keep going. Yeah. And, I mean, I won't talk for the Australians. I imagine you might get an Australian on the show at some point to talk about Australia's experience with pastoralism. But um, in one other point I'd like to make is, with so with the New Zealand fence, as you call it, in the States, the electric fence, or even just simply fencing, whether it's electric or not, or subdivision as we call it, that's been a huge part of New Zealand's pastoral experience and journey of mm -hmm. subdividing areas or blocks of hill country and high country. To uh, That's the first thing to do before even putting in improved grasses that, you know, from the the base grassland sward that emerged after the forest felling has been um, using fences to concentrate an area um, and then moving the animals. Um, and as a result of that, uh, some other work that's done here at Lincoln, uh, Professor Derek Moot, who runs the drylands pasture team, um, has used, developed really specific summer forage grazing systems using alfalfa or lucerne um, as a forage crop in summer to bring off animals, both sheep and beef cattle, off the hill country that was their food source in the spring to allow those areas to go to seed, to rest a bit, and you've, you um, feed your prime animals, you know, lambs that need fattening or young cattle stock, beef cattle stock, prime beef, onto more intensive uh, forage crops like lucerne or red clover and that's only possible with subdivision and strategic improvement of areas that you know are flat so you can add inputs and do pasture renovation while leaving the sort of rangeland areas um, relatively undisturbed or modified um, so that was my when I, I guess got into rangelands research was looking at these naturalized annual clovers because I had a question for you, Tip, again about naturalized species. Uh, we've talked a bit about those in eastern Oregon, or you told me a bit about those and the role they play in terms of functional diversity or resilience. They may not be native, but they fulfill a, a role in that grazed landscape or ecosystem. So, um I did my PhD on four naturalized 
annual clover trifolium species in a high country farm that was characterized by a summer dry period from late spring to early autumn of soil moisture deficit and as a result there are certain areas on the landscape that are dominated by annual plant communities grasses and, and legumes or hardy perennial shrubs um, yeah these species of course originate from turkey iran georgia hmm. uh, north africa Medi the true mediterranean italy and so on mm-hmm uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you before I forget about it, you have a pretty yeah. good awareness of North American grazier culture. And even though what we've mostly talked about on this podcast has been, uh, you know, semi-arid rangelands and more natural plant communities, there, mm. you know, most most of the ranchers that are grazing in those plant communities, I don't know if most is accurate, but it's not too far off to say that. A significant number of of the of the ranches in North America also have irrigated pasture that right. is managed pretty intensively. You know, where you could have range ground that produces seven hundred pounds to the acre uh, forage. I'm not quite sure what sure what that is in kilograms per. It's actually hectare, close. It's actually close to being seven hundred or eight hundred kgs dry <laughs> okay. matter to the hectare. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost one to one. Yeah, and then they're also managing irrigated pasture that may produce, you know, eight thousand pounds per acre, mm. uh, and and that you know represents a lot of times where where ranchers would be uh, keeping calves or you know first calf heifers that require a little bit better nutrition. Uh, is there anything that you see your kiwis doing well in terms of pasture management that uh, is missing from from intensive pasture management in the United States. Oh, um, that's putting me on the spot a bit, Tip. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I mean uh, this is a space I'd love to explore more by returning to the states and and looking and talking to people. But um, from what I've seen, the limited things I've seen, and talking to people like yourself. Um, and comparing that to the New Zealand experience is that I think we're we're a bit spoilt in New Zealand because of the climate, mm. which means we can. It's much easier to manage to get a good outcome here of your pasture than it is, say, in an area where you know you, it's truly semi-arid and you get plants that go into dormancy, like Steve Franson was. You know, went through that pasture calendar and talked about dormancy mm -hmm. and what happens with root shedding and new initiation of apical meristems of those roots. But in New Zealand, really most of the year, things keep growing. There's very few spots where we have um, true dormancy of forage or pasture plants. Now, if you take that into account, um, the things we do to get maximum growth rates and you know minimal animal health problems and basically get live weight gains um, at the at maximum to reach these um, saleable targets uh, for whether it's beef cattle or young beef cattle or young dairy cattle that are going to be you know, dairy heifers that are going into a milking herd or if that's um, lambs that need to be ready before Christmas and they were born in um, August or September, or even later. Mm -hmm. um, it, I guess, it's the placement, uh, the placement and frequency of subdivision. So the use of fences or the ability to control um, grazing pressure in space and time using subdivision, and also the mm -hmm. climate allowing or the, the yeah the climates so of the precipitation and the temperature allowing pretty rapid regrowth if there's no grazing and you know New Zealand in terms of geographical space fits into the Pacific Northwest if you include Washington and Oregon together we're really quite small mm -hmm. um, in saying that there's a lot of climatic variability in soils and so on but 
that's that's the only comment I could say at this stage. I, I feel there's a lot more there that could be teased out if I spent more time um, in the United States. Um, but well, one other thing I'd add to that actually is the use of is the nutrition and the use of legumes. So that's that's one mm. other factor for us as we really hammer home. It's almost a doctrine. It's almost dogmatic at times around legumes. Um, use legumes to drive your pasture system or, and going further than that, what species of legume would drive your system wherever you are happen to be in the country? So whether that's white clover or red clover or subterranean clover or lucerne or, or a combination of lotus and something else or, or another top flowering annual clover. Um, white clover is the dominant in New Zealand because it's pre predominantly quite moist throughout the country, but in areas where it's dry, we, get, we use other legumes. Um, matching the species to the ecosystem you're in. And with that nutrition and that nitrogen being fixed to benefit the grasses, um, that's been our, our recipe. And good grazers in New Zealand, good farmers really try to graze in a way that favours the legume component because they know that if that's right, everything else will benefit. You know, if it's a grass-dominant pasture starting and you can, you think, okay, how do we get more legume back into the component, back into the sward component? Yeah, I think you're right. It's my impression that at least over the last 50 years, there's been <clears throat> a lot of a lot of pasture management accomplished with the use of herbicides mm. and um, you know people can have a pretty wide variety of strong opinions about whether or not herbicide is a good idea or not but yeah. the widespread use of broadleaf herbicides certainly has uh, been a major limiting factor in allowing some of these legumes that should be uh, successful and productive and part of you know providing some sustainable um, nitrogen in pasture systems yeah I, I think that has been a pretty big deal yeah well I mean if you want to put feel good or sort of labels on things it's the most organic way to get more nitrogen into your system is to use legumes and that's been done for hundreds of years I guess if it's a cropping system or whatever. Sure. The, and without I mean, it, you have to, if you're spending money on herbicide to kill plants that shouldn't be there, which also kills some that should be there. And then yeah. as a result of not having the legumes, then you're also having to spend money on pasture fertilizer. If you're yeah. exporting 10 to 20% of the nitrogen out of that, uh, you know, soil plant interface every year. Yeah. Um, it takes a bit – you have to be mindful of the – I'm thinking as a grazier now, like one of the things I guess New Zealand does well is the grazier is the, – the grazing manager and farmer is thinking, how do I graze this to suit the personality, if you follow me, of the legume component or the traits mm -hmm. of the legume component? What does, what right. does that species like? What doesn't it like? Um, and the other thing there is uh, – how um, the sensitivities or the nuances around grazing management for the legume rather than the grass and being on the ball with that or having your thumb on the pulse for that can be the difference between success or just mediocre. Um, and, and if you had 60 seconds to describe how people manage for the dominant legumes, uh, how would you describe that? Higher sword height? Um, Lower, uh, well, lower sward. So it's all about making sure enough light uh, gets light to the get down ground. into those legumes. Yeah. So the top dominant one, whether that's subclover, subterranean clover, trifolium subterranean, or trifolium repens, white clover, in New Zealand, um, using your uh, a stock class or livestock class to make sure that the sward height. Is, is controlled so that light is getting down and warmth is getting down to those legumes so they can express their biological potential, assuming that 
you've taken care of phosphorus and soil pH levels. And that's where the 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 dance, if you like, between sheep and beef cattle comes into play in the in the hill country of New Zealand, where you can use either old, you know, use um, the female sheep that are no longer lactating to condition a pasture or for the subsequent spring. So you're eating down the tag or the standing dead matter using beef cattle in the spring to make sure they keep on top of the fast growing ryegrass, which is going to go to seed earlier than your white clover, keeping that down so the white clover is getting the sunlight and the warmth so it can then express itself and making sure you have just enough mouths of beef cattle with the sheep so you've got that balance with the cattle being less discriminatory than the sheep with their grazing preference. Um, that's over 60 seconds, but that would be my uh, summation, I guess, tip is this is about um, height and density balance using grazing management strategically for the sake of the legume and whether that's a perennial or an annual. If it's a perennial, when it's growing the most, making sure you're on top of that sward height and density. If it's an annual, making sure you are not grazing it when it's going to seed. So you've taken off the grazing pressure to allow that to go to seed. And then before the autumn or fall rains come, when those seeds will germinate, making a garden bed, if you like, of some bare ground or low sward heights so that those seeds can germinate and not get shaded out by annual grasses or competing less palatable grasses. That no, that's a great summary. And I, that reminds me of a conversation we'd had previously about competing rules of thumb. Mm. You know, those are the, those are um, good grazing guidelines for either, you know, rain fed pasture in an environment where you receive more than, 25 inches of rain per year uh, but but those if you apply that kind of thinking and that management to our bunch grasses uh, yeah. i'm not totally sure whether they're uh, you know physiologically uh, similar or identical to your tussock grasses where you know where our bunch grasses in much of the west have elevated growing points mm -hmm. and they're vulnerable to being uh, killed if they're grazed below those every year and they require periodic seed production yes. you know th those those guidelines are antagonistic with the kind of grazing that you would do to maintain a high quality you know grass legume pasture and that's it something is. we might need to explore in a uh, separate podcast maybe pull a few yeah. more people in that'd be fun yeah yeah that would be fun and um just to uh, follow on, yes, I, I believe our tussock species, tussock grass species in New Zealand have that same um, personality, if you like, um, phenology, mm -hmm. growth development, um, ecology as your bunch grasses in that there's an elevated growing point. There's a lot of standing dead matter in a, a clump of grass and um, in order to reseed, uh, they, they can't have had their their living limbs, if you like, grazed off. Um, and if mm -hmm. they are, they're constantly drawing on their, their rootstocks to replenish. Just to add to that as well, the tussock, native tussock grasses don't always flower each year. They have a, what called a masting season where some years, you know, you have massive and other years you don't. But these can be long-lived species. An individual plant could be 50 years, 70 years old. Um, in a wow. clump and yeah. uh, can can tolerate to an extent some grazing and fire with you know if 80% of its mass is this dead matter that's or standing dead uh, biomass that's protecting the the living shoot or crown a bit like I guess you know a, a redwood with its huge bark mass it can tolerate a bit of fire um, but yeah excessive or repeated grazing they they don't grow fast. The shoot the leaves don't replenish in the same way that a an annual ryegrass would. So hmm. yeah. Well, that's an excellent teaser for a future episode. So I'm going to make an abrupt shift and uh, thank you again for your time, Thomas Maxwell from Lincoln University in New Zealand. I'm thrilled to have had you on today. 
Thank you very much, Tip. It's been my pleasure as well. Um, I really love your podcast. I think you're doing a great job and um, many more topics to talk about with people, but keep up the good work with your podcast. It's, it's really cool. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.